I uh, thought a lot about our, our time together this morning. Um, there is one more sermon that I have to preach at the very end of the book of Ephesians. There is this amazing statement that talks about Paul's exhortation to people like us to love God with an incorruptible love. And that phrase just caught my attention. What does it mean to love God with an incorruptible love? And I thought, okay, that's the best way for us to wrap up the book of Ephesians. And so that's what we're going to look at next Sunday. I had intended to preach to you on the sanctity of human life last Sunday, but because of our candidate situation and the weather, we have moved that to this Sunday. And I want to talk to you this morning from the Word of God about a very, very important and yet culturally significant topic right out of the Word of God. You know, as we think about the sanctity of human life, the the most natural place we turn to in our Bible is Psalm 139. And I asked Pastor Mike if he would uh, pick a passage that would speak to that. And I didn't tell him what passage to pick, but this is the passage that he picked for us. And so what I want to do today is I want to I do three things. I want to tell you a story. I want to give you some statistics because I think it's important that we quantify something. And then I want us to go to the Scripture and I want us to answer five questions because we have to think biblically about this topic. And I want you to stop for a minute and I want you to ask yourself this question because I had to ask myself this question. Why would a church like ours... Okay, we are a conservative evangelical church. We are deeply committed to orthodoxy. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture. We actually believe that what God has said in His Word is so. So why would a church like ours need to talk about a topic like this? Why would we have to spend time on a Sunday morning talking about the sanctity of life? It might surprise you to know that one out of every four abortions that happens in this country happens to a person who is a professing evangelical Christian. That's a pretty stunning statistic. So if you think that this topic is not relevant for a church like ours, I think you might be surprised if everybody in this room could just sort of let their guards down, let their walls down, and be completely transparent. I think you might be surprised at what you would hear. And so I want to take the time this morning to talk about this. So let's begin with a story that many of you are familiar with, but perhaps some of you are not. All of this began politically in 1969 in the state of Texas, when a 21-year-old dropout, high school dropout, who was divorced, homeless, found herself pregnant for the third time. This is not an unusual story. It's a sad story. It's a shocking story in some ways. It perhaps may offend our sensibilities to hear us talk this way in a church service, but that is the reality for many, many people. Here was a young lady, 21 years old, high school dropout, made some very bad decisions in the course of her life, came from a very difficult 
home background and found herself pregnant for the third time. She had given up the first two of her babies for adoption. But this time, when she went to the adoption agency, the adoption agency connected her with two lawyers who had come to them looking for a plaintiff. They had a case they were hoping to file that would challenge Texas law. And so they were looking for somebody that they could use as the plaintiff in that case. You can't file a case without a plaintiff. And so they were looking for someone that would fit the bill. And so this young lady was named Norma. And her adoption agency connected her with these two lawyers. And she fit their agenda perfectly. And in order to protect her identity, they gave her a pseudonym. And the pseudonym was Jane Rowe. She met with those two lawyers. She signed an affidavit, became their plaintiff. And by her own account, she never saw those two lawyers again. She never appeared in court. And she never aborted that baby. However, the two lawyers filed their case, and it went to the highest court in the land. It went to the Supreme Court in a landmark 7-2 decision. The Supreme Court ruled that Jane Roe and all women living in the United States had a constitutional right to end an unwanted pregnancy in the first trimester, and in some cases, even in the second trimester of that pregnancy. That's the story. That's how Jane Roe came to be, and that's how the decision that was made on January 22nd, 1973, became law in our land. It's been 49 years since that story happened. Let me give you some statistics since that time. In the 49 years that have followed that decision, there have been 1.5 billion babies aborted worldwide. I mean, think about that number for a minute. That is a staggering number. There have been 62 million of those babies that were aborted in the United States alone. And while we are extremely thankful that over the last number of years, the number of abortions in the United States has been decreasing, There was a time in uh, the the 80s and the 90s where there were more than a million abortions happening in this country every year. This past past year, at least in 2019, which is the latest stat I was able to find, there were more than 620,000 abortions that took place in this country. I mean, when you stop and think about the sheer number of statistics that we have. It, it is unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. How many abortions happen in the course of a year? How many happen in the course of a month? How many happen in the course of a day? These numbers are so large that they almost lose their meaning. We, we, our, our, our mind just loses the ability to put ourselves in a place where we can grapple with these staggering statistics. And that's why on the Sunday closest to January 22nd, many churches have called their congregations like we're doing today to stop the normal flow of everything 
and give attention to this, that we would reflect deeply about this, that we would pray fervently as individual believers and, and as a congregation and respond personally to what God has said in his word regarding the sanctity of all human life, especially the life of those yet unborn residing in their mother's womb. Now, let me just stop for a minute and make this observation. I know of no evangelical Christian who would deny the sanctity of human life once that life has been born. I don't think, at least I don't know, and I have never heard of an evangelical Christian organization that would sanction the termination of human life after birth. So that's not what we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about this morning is the sanctity of that human life in the nine months that it resides in the womb of its mother. And and so the big question that evangelical churches have had to wrestle with since Roe versus Wade is this, is, is what is sanctified? What, what do we give sanctity to? Is it the right of the mother or is it the right to life of the unborn infant? That's really the question if we're going to put it out there. And the church has been divided. The country has been divided. The church has been divided and evangelical Christians have been divided on that question. And all you have to do to see evidence for that is to look at the voting record of most evangelical Americans who have the right to use their vote to speak for God about the sanctity of human life. And so when you stop and think about this question, we need more than just a political answer. We need more than just a personal preference. We actually need to come to the scripture and we need to ask God, what do you have to say on this topic? And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to just take you, and this is the third thing. Remember I told you I was going to tell you a story. I was going to give you some statistics, and then I was going to take you to the Scripture. And here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like us to look at five questions that progressively lead us down a path. Each one of these questions that we're going to look at this morning progressively leads us to a conclusion on this matter, all right? So, so let me encourage you to write the question down and then to think about the answer because even if you don't think this topic is important for you personally, I, I, would, I would encourage you this morning to think about the fact that in your lifetime, somewhere along the way, you are gonna have the opportunity to speak into somebody's life on this topic. And when you are speaking to that life about this topic, they need more than just your opinion. They need more than just your strong preference or your strong exhortation. They actually need to wrestle with the very things we're going to talk about from God's Word. So here's question number one, and it has to do with our own life. With regard to my own life, does God give me the ultimate right to choose what to do with my body? Does God give me the ultimate right to choose what to do with my body? And this is, 
an important question because if you happen to run into people who are pro-choice, this is the foundation of their argument. It is my body and it is my life and I have the right to make decisions about my body and my life, including anything that touches the reproduction that goes on in that body or in that life. And so this is where we need to start. What does God have to say with regard to my own life? Does God give me the ultimate right to choose what I do with my body? Now, as we look at the answer to that question, we're starting with a presupposition. And the presupposition is this. Everybody in this room has to decide what role they are going to give to the scriptures in terms of defining how they're going to live life. Does the Bible function in your life as a sacred document that we revere, that we sort of hold up and that we reverence and that we go to for comfort and for help and that we, we listen to and we read and we, we, we sing about in our services on Sunday? Is it a sacred document that we sort of exalt and we reverence or is it actually a functional document that has authority to determine how we live our life? That's what you have to answer. It isn't enough to say, hey, I believe the Bible is inspired. The question you really have to ask yourself about that inspired document, that inspired book, is does it have the right to come in and tell me how to live my life? That's the question. And I'm presupposing this morning that you have come to that position where you are saying, the Bible isn't just inspired, the Bible has authority to tell me how to live my life. And if you believe that, then what God has to say about how you use your body is defining. And so here's what God says. We are not our own, we are bought with a price, so we must use our bodies for his purpose and pleasure and not merely our own. You say, what's the question again? Does God give me the ultimate right to choose what to do with my own body? And there are three texts that play into this. And the first of those, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, gives a very clear answer to that. Your body is not your own. You don't own your body. Listen to what Paul said. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So when you listen to somebody talk and they start talking along the lines of, well, this is my body and this is my life and I have the right to decide what I'm going to do with my body and with my life, God's answer to that is this. It is not your body and it is not your life. It is my body, and I bought it with a price. I created that body, and then I redeemed that body. I purchased that body with a price. And you are supposed to do something with the body that belongs to me that I have entrusted to you. You are to use that body to glorify me. Romans chapter 12 is another text that speaks to this. We have been given freedoms and rights by God, but those freedoms and rights are to be used to pursue paths that glorify God and that please and honor Him. Romans 12, 1, we are to present our bodies 
a living sacrifice. We are to deliver those bodies over to God as a holy, acceptable, living sacrifice. And that is our reasonable service to the God who saved us. So, and, and here's why. We give God our bodies for this reason, so that we may discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 27, and again in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, that because we were created with a body that is in the image of God, then life is sacred to God, and it must be held sacred to us. We are created in his image as an image bearer. And then we have been given dominion over all of the other creatures. And and this is how God said uh, this to Noah in Genesis 9. He said to Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. But if those living things eat you, in other words, if you become food for them, then surely the blood of your life will I require at the hand of every beast. And later on, we're going to find out that it's not just at the hand of every beast. If a man, a human being, sheds another human being's life, blood, intentionally, takes another person's life intentionally, their life is to be forfeited. So when it comes to the question, who has the rights to my body? The answer to that is this. It is not me. I don't own my body. God owns my body. That's question number one. Question number two, does God give me as an individual with regard to the life of another, does God give me as an individual the right to intentionally harm the life or the well-being of another person? In other words, when, when God who orchestrated the way human life works said to us, now listen, I've created you as an image bearer, and and that is sacred to me. The life of every image bearer is sacred, and therefore your body is not yours, it's mine. What rights do I have to intentionally harm the body of another image bearer, or the life or the well-being of another image bearer? And the scriptures are abundantly clear on this. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, repeated again in Deuteronomy 5, 17, and reiterated a third time in the New Testament by the Lord himself in Matthew 19, 18. We are expressly told that we must not kill. And the word for kill there is the word for the intentional, premeditated taking away of somebody else's life. I become so angry at you, or I become so disappointed in you, or or there's some reason that I perceive I need in my life that requires the taking away of your life, that I begin to premeditate that, and I eventually do that. And God says that is prohibited because, number one, it's not their life, it's mine. And number two, you can't do intentional harm or damage to the life or to the well-being of a life that belongs to me. And if you do that, this is what the penalty for that is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. If you decide that that you have the right to take somebody else's life away intentionally, 
then this is the punishment for that. Whosoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And the whole reason that he gives human government the right to do that is premised on these passages. God says that life belongs to me. And when you step in and you willfully harm that life or you remove that life or you you you, you actually kill that life, then there's a penalty for that that I am imposing. And it is this, your life will be taken away. And then there's a New Testament ethic. It's not just that you don't murder people and you don't intentionally take away their life. Paul actually heightens this in Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when he says to the Thessalonians, we are always to seek to do good to one another as Christians, and to everyone. And so when you ask the question, does God give me the individual right to intentionally harm the life or the well-being of another person, the answer to that in Scripture is very clear. The answer to that is no. Which leads us then to a third question. All right, so here's what we know. I mean, if we've been following these questions and we've been letting the Scriptures answer, here's what we know so far. We know, number one, that the argument that it's my body and I have the right to do whatever I want to do with my body, it's my life, I get to do whatever I want with my life, we have, we've already seen what God, God's answer to that is, and God's answer to that is, no, it's not your body. And by the way, <clears throat> that's not just important for young people, right? I mean, that's something we often teach our young people, our children, and our teenagers say to them, look, this is not your life. You want to use your life for the glory of God. You, you, you don't want to put that in your body. You don't want to put that substance in your body. You don't want to do that with your body. That is not why God gave you a body. So we are, we are tuned in when it comes to helping our teenagers and our children understand that. But this is actually the truth for all of us, right? This is not our life. These, this is not our body. We don't get to do whatever we want with it. And then we also learned that we don't have the right to do whatever we want with somebody else's life or to somebody else's body because that person's life and that person's body belongs to the same person who owns our life and who owns our body. So not only do I not get to do whatever I want with my body and my life, I don't get to do whatever I happen to want with your life and with your body because they belong to the Lord. And that brings us then to the third question, and that is, when does a person become a person? Because if God says to me, I don't get to do harm to somebody else, to another person, then I need to know when a person becomes a person. And there's a lot of debate in the scientific community that goes on about that and that has been going on for the last 50 years. And if you start looking into what's going on in that debate and you start actually following that debate, you would be amazed at how very, very smart people check out when it comes to defining when life begins. And we have fallen back to a decision that a Supreme Court made 49 years ago to sort of define 
whether or not we can take away a person's life. And now we've got to decide when we have an abortion, if we are just removing a mass of tissues that happens to be growing in the womb of a young lady or, or of a woman, or are we actually taking away the life of a person? This is the key question. When does a person become a person? And the reason that's so important for you and for me is this. Our conscience will never rest in this matter of abortion until we have a good answer to that question. So what does God say about that? Can I give you five scriptures? And I encourage you to write these down because if you're ever talking to someone who's considering having an abortion, the idea that, okay, this is not your body and this is not your life and you don't get to do harm to somebody else's life will actually fall flat until they actually come and and see that what is growing in their womb is actually a person. And they're going to need more than somebody like me saying that to them. They're going to need more than my words or your words. They're going to actually need God's words. And so let me give you five places where the Scripture talks about this. In Psalm 139, verse 13, David speaks, and in his speech he reveals that whatever is growing in the womb is life. It is created by God. David said, you formed my inward parts You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There is this jaw-dropping recognition, this this awesome, uh, awe-filled recognition in David's life that what was going on in his mother's womb was of the Lord. And so that's where we've got to start, that whatever is happening in the womb of a woman is happening under the auspices of, of, of things that God initiated, all right? God formed my inward parts. He knit me together in my mother's womb. In other words, God is intimately observant and engaged in the process that he initiated that began the process of this life, all right? Psalm 22, verse 9 through 11 is the next passage we need to look at. Whatever is growing in that womb The question is, is it a person? And here's a text in Psalm 22. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. In other words, the psalmist is talking about the fact that from the moment he was in his mother's womb, God knew him and, and was involved in his life, and that from the time that he came out of that womb, he had knowledge that God was his God. And from my mother's womb, you have been my, my God. Not talking so much about the infant having this salvific relationship or knowing God. It's talking about the fact that God has been intimately engaged from the moment of birth, and even before birth, in the life of that person. And in this case, it's David. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, let me give you another text. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. 
You see, because Psalm 22 actually could be read that, that this was just from the moment of actual physical birth forward. Well, let me give you a text where it's really clear that God is engaged even before that moment. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. So when does life begin? When does personhood begin? One could actually make the case that it begins even before. Because here's God saying, I, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you. I set you apart. And I ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. You were called, you were appointed, and you were given a purpose by God even before you were born. Psalm 51 verse 5 is the fourth place in our Bible where we read a text that speaks to this. David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not talking about the fact that when his mother and his father conceived him, they were doing it in a sinful way. That's not what he's talking about when he talks about the fact that, that he was conceived in sin. He's talking about the fact that from the moment of his conception, he had to wrestle with the same thing that every other human on this planet has to wrestle with, and that is this. From a moral standpoint, they have a sin nature that has to be reconciled and has to be dealt with. You say, well, okay, let me give you one last text. That's a stunning text. It's in Luke chapter 1. And you see two women who are pregnant. You see one woman who's very advanced. She's at least six months pregnant. You have another woman who's very early on in her pregnancy, and they come together. One woman is named Elizabeth, and the other is named Mary. And when Mary comes into the presence of Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And the joy is because of a recognition that is prompted by the Holy Spirit. You have all the parts of personhood ascribed here to someone who is growing inside the womb. So if we said we were going to let the scriptures actually define and be the authoritative voice in the matter, then we have a pretty good answer to the question, when does a person become a person? And the answer is a person becomes a person at the moment of conception, and a person is a person the entire time they are in their mother's womb. And that brings us to the fourth question, and that is this. Well, well, Pastor Sam, the Constitution has given us a right. Our government has spoken to this, and I hear what you're saying. I understand that I don't get to do whatever I want to do with my body, and I don't get to do whatever I want to do if it's harmful. I don't get, I don't get to inflict harm or do damage to somebody else's body. And I understand what you just said, that, that God speaks authoritatively about when a person becomes a person. But what do I do with the fact that in this country, it's legal to have an abortion? I mean, the Constitution, apparently, based on the decision, Roe versus Wade, has given all the women in this country the right to have an abortion, or to end an unwanted pregnancy. What do I do with that? Well, let's let the fourth question deal with what is the role of human government 
when it comes to this? What is the role? And if you go back to the scriptures in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we read earlier, and in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, here's what God says, the role of human government. It is to protect the lives of the people under its authority by demanding the life of those who wrongfully terminate the life of somebody else. I mean, that's the role God gave to human government. If you take the life of another person in a prohibited way, if you intentionally damage another person, it is the role of human government. God has assigned that authority and that role to human government to demand a a recompense for that. And if you take somebody's life away, then your life needs to be taken away. That's the role of human government according to God's word. And it's not just that negative side, it's the positive side. In Exodus chapter 3 or 23 verse 7, uh, God has established human government to protect the life of the innocent and the righteous. He says to Israel, keep thee far from a false matter and the innocent and righteous slay thou not for I will not justify the wicked. And if you want it even more clearly spelled out in Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25, God puts a premium, he puts a value on the life of the unborn by demanding an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth for a person who causes an intentional miscarriage in a woman. I mean, God looked at the life in that womb and and he said to the person who caused that miscarriage, you don't get to just walk away from this. I care about that person. And there is going to be a judgment that comes on you for doing that. So when you think about the role of human government, it is there to exact the life of somebody who takes, who wrongfully takes the life of another person. And it's there to protect the life and the well-being of those who are under its auspices. There's a lot more we could say about this, but let me end this morning with a fifth and final question, and that is this. So, Pastor Sam, we happen to live in a country where we still have a lot of rights. There are people all over the world that don't. So, obviously, God has given authority to human government, and, and it's pretty much supposed to protect and defend and guard the life of its citizens and punish those who wrongfully remove the life of one of its citizens. But what is the church supposed to do? What is the church supposed to do? And I would just say this. Church like ours, we should grieve. We should grieve over this. And that's why I started with the statistics. The statistics are so stunning. They just sort of wash over us, and they're so large that it's almost like we, we it's just like, okay, you know, that's, that's awful. That's, uh, I, and we just can't get our hand around it or our head around it. And so as soon as the service is over, we're done, and we move on. And, and here's the point. Nobody is a statistic to God. Nobody is a statistic to God. God knows every one of those 1.5 billion lives that were lost. Every one of them. In 2019, the last year that we had a statistic, 620,000 babies aborted in this country. 
That's a number to us. It may be stunning to us this morning. That may be a stat that people like me can use to energize you to think a certain way. But they're not a stat to God. And there there needs to come a time corporately, and, and I would say even individually, where we ought to grieve that something like this is going on in the world and that something like this is going on in our country and that something like this is going on in our church. Not our church personally, but in our church, the body of Christ. And then we should pray about this persistently. You know, I was reminded here over the last number of months of how fervently we pray when we hear news. You know, every once in a while, different ones of you will text me or you'll text somebody in our church and you'll tell us what's going on in your life. And it's like, God, please intervene. I know what I feel. I know what happens during my day when I get a text from different ones and they're saying, Pastor, this is what's going on. Please pray for me. And it's like, Lord, I wish I could, you know, Friday night, uh, one of our members is in the hospital and and it had been a long day and I was driving home and I thought, you know, I'm going to go up there because I've been thinking about him all day today and I want to go up there. My wife reminded me. And so I I went up to the hospital and I I got in there and uh, I was even in a suit for crying out loud. And I walk up there and I'm going, I named this person's name. I said, I want to go up there. And, uh, and they want, well, why do you want to go visit him? I'm like, because I'm his pastor. And they're like, well, you can't go up. I'm like, what do you mean you can't go up? You can't go up. I'm a pastor. It doesn't matter. Visiting hours are X, Y, and Z. And COVID is why you can't go up. And you know what? I got mad. I mean, I didn't like get mad out of here. I mean, I, I wasn't like saying mad things. But when I left, I got in my car and I was mad. I was mad at COVID. I was mad at everything. Why? Because I wanted to go up there and I just wanted to be there and I wanted to pray with my brother. That's one person. You have felt that way in your life about people you care about. Do we pray like this? for the rights of the unborn, the life of the unborn, the immense pressure that comes on the life of a young lady at a very vulnerable time in her life, where she's really nowhere to go and nowhere to turn to, do we pray about that? We should voice our objection to this. We should do this appropriately and boldly. We should do our part to stop this legally. We should guard against this personally. And then we should be sensitive to this because this isn't a them problem. This is an us problem. You know, many of you in this room have never had the scenario where you've had a son or a daughter come to you and say, Mom or Dad, I I got a really hard thing to say to you. And you have no idea the immense pressure of that moment. What do I do? How do I talk to my mom and dad about this? How do I talk to my parents about this? How do I, what do I do? And at that moment, you as a parent and we we as a church have an opportunity 
not just to minister to that young lady and that young man. We have an opportunity to save a life by how we respond. There will be time for all the teaching and all the recrimination and all the rest of that. But at that moment, what your daughter or your son most need is this. We are going to go to God and we are going to get through this together because we are a family. You know, the church hasn't done much better. We've made it so hard for a young lady or a young man in this circumstance We put them in impossible positions at the most vulnerable time in their life when we should be coming around them and saying, we love you. The grace of God will sustain you. We will help you. Because after all, it's not our decision and it's not their decision. It's God's decision. I was speaking with somebody about this recently in a forum. And, um, and, and this is a statement that was made in that time frame that we were talking about this. You know, oftentimes a woman will say, you know, I'm pregnant. And it's not just an unmarried woman. It could be even a married woman. I'm pregnant. I'm not ready for a pregnancy. This is disruptive. I, this is not the right time to bring a baby into the world. I'm not equipped to be a mother. I'm not the best person to raise this child. I'm going to bring this baby into the world, and, and my baby is going to suffer because of my bad decision and my bad choice. And the most merciful thing I could do, the best thing I could do for my baby and, and for everybody is just to end its life. And here's the point, gently, to all of us who perhaps think that way. It's not your baby. Any more than it's your body, it's not your baby. It's the Lord's. It's God's baby. And he has entrusted that life to you. No matter how it occurred, there is sufficient grace. You say, what do I do if I've had an abortion, Pastor? What do I do? I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know where to go. What do I do? You know what I would say to you? Tell it to Jesus. He already knows. Not like you're going to surprise him. He already knows. And he's already covered that. That's what 1 John is all about. If we confess our sins, he is what? faithful and just to forgive our sins. You can come to the Lord and say, Lord, I know this is covered. I know this is forgiven, but this is unfinished business between us, and I want to finish the business. I want to bring it to you. I want to confess it because you've already forgiven it. And I want the restored fellowship. I want, I want the sense that there's nothing between us anymore. You've already known this, and I've known this, but there's been unfinished business between us, and I want to come to you, and I want to finish the business. I was preaching this message at a church on a Right to Life Sunday, on a Sanctity of Life Sunday, and after church, it was a man that came up to me and he was in his late 50s, early 60s. And, you know, he's kind of hung around after the service. And 
as people were sort of dispersing and leaving, he came up to me and he said, Brother Sam, I, I need to talk to you. And he started to weep. And he said, you know, many, many years ago, before I became a Christian, my girlfriend and I fell into sin. She got pregnant, and I pressured her into having an abortion. And I, I've been saved. I've asked God to forgive me. And what do I do? I said, I just can't. I said, I'm, I'm afraid to face that infant when I get to heaven. And I don't know why I said this. I mean, there are just times I think the Lord puts words actually in your mouth. And I said to him, I said, sir, you know what I think? I think you have a son or a daughter looking down from heaven. And every time you serve the Lord, they are so thrilled. They're like nudging everybody else going, that's my dad. That's my dad. You know, that's really, the, that's really what grace does. And I would just suggest to you that if this has been a part of your life story, then tell it to Jesus, finish the business, and let the grace of God do what the grace of God does. Let the grace of God bring healing and joy and life and strength. May that be true for you. May that be true for me. May that be true for all of us. And can I just end with this? If you're a young person here, you're a young man, you're a young lady, the first thing I want to say to you is, can I just implore you as a parent, can I implore you as a pastor, guard the purity and the sanctity of your sexuality. There's a reason God says what he says about human sexuality being designed to operate in the function of marriage. So that's the first thing I want to say to you. But if you ever find yourself as a young person in this church, if you ever find yourself overtaken by Satan and you're in a mess and you are in this impossible place as a young teenager or a young man or a young lady and you're having to make a choice like this, can I just say to you right now as your pastor, we love you. We are not going to turn our back on you. We will help you. If you come to your parents or you come to us, we will help you navigate this. We will help you get through this. We will stand with you as the grace of God comes alongside you. We will help you choose life.